The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your host is Jessica Pirro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro. Welcome. Good morning. Welcome to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. I am your host, Jessica Pirro, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to the show today. As we begin our discussion, and if you have any questions during the show, you, you can email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That is J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. And today, we also will be taking callers, um, calls from our listeners today. So if you have any questions for our guests during the show, please call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5792. Over the past few weeks since we began the show, we have highlighted the work of crisis centers around the country who provide support and services 24 hours a day. We've talked around the issues of suicide, domestic violence, mental health and addiction, and our crisis first responders are available to provide help and support for those in crisis. I proudly serve as the CEO of Crisis Services in Buffalo, New York, and this is where you're, we're coming live to you today. And we, uh, we are, and if you're interested in learning more about our organization or our mission or how you can donate to the organization, please feel free to visit our website at www.crisisservices.org. The title of our show today is From Diagnosis to Advocacy, Finding Empowerment in Mental Health. I am very happy to have advocate and author Carl Shalahorn joining me today to share his story and to have an open discussion on living with mental illness, recovering from addiction, and using his voice and experience to help others. Carol Shalhorn is the Director of Community Advocacy for the Mental Health Association of Erie County and also working with Compere Buffalo. He is a New York State credentialed alcohol and substance abuse counselor and has worked in both the addictions and mental health fields. Carl is also an author of Working on Wellness, a practical guide to mental health and has also written and blogged for BP Magazine. Carl is a certified mental health first aid instructor for adults, children, veterans, higher education and the older adult communities. Carol serves on the board of directors for the Mental Health Association in New York State and the Erie County Mental Hygiene Community Services Board, the United Church of Christ Mental Health Network, and the Fourth and Forever Foundation. Carol has a bachelor's degree in broadcasting and a master's degree in student personnel administration, both from SUNY Buffalo State. So I want to welcome Carl to the show, and I appreciate you spending some time with me today. Thank you, Jessica. Great to be here. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your story? Um, I had 
kind of a, a journey over the last uh, 34, 35 years. Uh, I live with bipolar disorder. Uh, I'm in long-term recovery from addiction. I had my first episode uh, with mania and psychosis at the age of 18. I was a student at General Motors Institute, which uh, was in Flint, Michigan, and it was pretty much a, a, a perfect storm of, of factors where it was being away from home for the first time, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, as well as you know the stress of being in a very rigorous academic environment. And all those things kind of came at me at once, and uh, I, I found it very hard to manage to the point where I really uh, was struggling and found myself basically catatonic in my, in my dormitory room, and then that's where it all began. Okay, okay. So can you share our, with our listeners a little bit about what your diagnosis is and what, what are those signs and symptoms with sure. the diagnosis? Yeah, um, as I said, I have bipolar disorder as well. I live with addiction uh, issues. And bipolar disorder basically is, is sometimes a little complicated. But in my case, um, I have bipolar 1. And that is where I have experienced in the past periods of mania, which essentially is, uh, you know, uh, elevated mood, uh, problems with sleep, uh, rapid speech, uh, you know, sometimes even risky behaviors, things like that, uh, to name but a few. Uh, and then also there, the psychotic element I have had in the past psychosis, which were along the lines of having delusional beliefs, you know, thinking that I was something that I wasn't, so to speak, you know, having that belief that isn't grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. So with that, uh, I had to, you know, overcome that. And it took a while. I mean, I, basically between, you know, 1981 and 1989, I really struggled for, for that ex- time uh, with all those symptoms. And I was in treatment, I was in therapy, but I was very non-compliant, you know, with, with medication. And uh, it was really came to a point where I had to make a decision about, you know, what I wanted to do, because I'd been in places that, frankly, uh, were very scary. I was, you know, a patient um, at the Buffalo General Hospital uh, Community Mental Health Center. I was at uh, ECMC, Erie, Community, uh, Erie County Medical Center, as well as Buffalo Psychiatric Center. And, you know, for, unfortunately, there are people who enter those facilities who sometimes you know, don't get out, especially in the case of BPC. Right, right. Now, you had um, mentioned you started beginning to have problems right around when you were off to college and kind of that uh, young adult age, which I think we do see the onset of some mental health diagnosis around that time. Um, and sometimes it's a balance for parents to know, is this is this just developmental stage or is this mental health or is this something broader than that? Um, so what, can you just describe maybe how you, those first First problems began for you, and maybe what are things that maybe family members could be watching uh, for a young young adult, for example? Sure, uh, you know it's interesting how. Well, my example it came about when I was away at college, but of course, as you said, that time in a person's life is sometimes when these things will begin, as far as experiencing symptoms and and so forth. Uh, but if if you look for these things, you want to try to observe uh, and and notice some of the signs. And so, like I said before, it might be a matter of, you know, recognizing when someone isn't sleeping properly or if they aren't taking care of themselves, if they're, you know, if they're not, their hygiene isn't, isn't uh, you know, proper or, you know, the way they dress uh, or especially in the case of addiction, uh, you know, it might want to see uh, if they are, you know, uh, if their eyes are glassy or, or if they are appearing to be, uh, you know, unable to think clearly. And, and so I think there's a lot of things you can look for, but essentially, you just want to look for any changes in, in terms of how the personality is. I mean, one of the first things you notice is, are they behaving like they typically would? 
And of course, everybody's a little bit different. You know, some people are more reserved. Some people are more, uh, you know, outgoing. But if you notice a marked change in that, that's probably the first thing you want to you want to recognize. Absolutely. Now, during your time, and you had mentioned you had a, uh, various inpatient um, stays at a couple different hospitals locally, um, and this is this is a bit of a journey to to embark on, and, and the struggles that go along with um, with mental illness. Um, is there a time that you felt hopeless? Absolutely. I'll, I'll say it this way. You know, when I first got diagnosed, uh, first of all, I didn't even know much about my illness. I didn't know anything about, you know, bipolar disorder. I knew I, I liked to use drugs. I knew that. Uh, but I, I really lacked what we call insight. And insight is essentially where we learn uh, about ourselves. We learn how to manage our recovery. We learn about our illness. But I had none of that. And, of course, the times when I felt hopeless were when, for instance, uh, in the summer of 1983, uh, it was a very difficult time for me. I basically spent almost the entire summer in bed. I remember laying there hot, you know, uncomfortable, sweaty, but I had no ability to function. And actually, that precipitated another hospitalization. But that was a time when I was thinking, you know, what's my life going to be like? I was, I was 21 years old, and, and I felt, you know, is this going to be it for me? And so it was a very difficult time. When you felt that way, what was the step or the question by somebody that helped kind of pull you from that to say, okay, I need to get help? Was it your family members or was it somebody that you went to school with? Like, what was that step that somebody reached out to you and you said, okay, I need to get help? Um, I think there's two answers to that question. One was I had a very strong family support system and I had a mother. My mom passed away in 1996, but my mother was a very strong influence to the point where she really pushed me pretty hard despite how much I was struggling. And that was just her nature of providing tough love. Now, I didn't always respond to that, but I remember I had an experience with a counselor uh, who basically kind of gave me an ultimatum, whether it be, you know, either I go to, you know, a recovery program, I go to rehab, or I end up back in the hospital. And it was at that moment, you know, we talk about having a moment of clarity. And it really hit me to the point where I realized, okay, I need to do something about this. And if I don't make a change, you know, this, this is going to be the pattern that I'm going to be going through for the rest of my life. And so I made the choice to get into a recovery program. And it made all the difference in the world. And it's been 28 years since I've been, you know, away from drugs and alcohol. It's made a big difference. So that that recovery program seemed to be that turning point for you to kind of put you on the path of how to incorporate your your mental health condition and your recovery as part of who you are instead of defining who you are. Absolutely. Is that a turning point for you? For sure. And in fact, I learned a lot about um, how to... You know, as the saying goes, deal with life on life's terms without, you know, uh, resorting to drug and alcohol use, but also how to manage my feelings, how to learn how to open up, which is also another key element in recovery, being able to talk and, and ask for help and use those supports that are available uh, that one might have. You know, I've been very fortunate, like I said, to have had a lot of family support over the years. I'm married now. I've been married now for almost 22 years. My wife is Certainly cool. my biggest advocate. Yes. And, um, but, you know, even in the early days uh, when I got involved with recovery, I had friends who were willing to help. I had friends who supported me. I remember the day uh, when I was in Erie County uh, uh, Medical Center, and it was actually I had a year clean. And my friends from recovery came in, and we had a meeting right there in the day room. Oh, and wow. that was such an incredibly, you know, I look back at the now, it was such an incredibly beautiful thing that I got that kind of support. Absolutely. And it, it really just speaks to how critical your friends and your family and even just coworkers or acquaintances, it may not be your friends and family that are the ones that 
provide you that moment of, of, of a turning point of I need to seek help or I need to, to, to talk with somebody. Sometimes it can be, you know, your colleague at work. But um, I think it's really important to highlight what you said about the support um, and the, the, the guidance that friends and family can provide so that you, you do have those, um, you know, really that, that guidance and support and help and hope um, that the family members can bring for you um, during those difficult times. Let me, let me just jump in real quick and sure. say that uh, not everybody has that support. You know, I've been very fortunate. I, I know from experience talking to people over time that sometimes they don't have the family, sometimes they don't have the friends, but there are other places to get support. There are support groups all over the country. There are uh, online forums. There are Facebook pages, there's all kinds of even social media now that could be used to get support in a way that we've never had it before. So that's uh, a good thing as well. Could you share, I know before we started the show, we were talking a little bit about some resources and there's definitely some online support websites for for individuals with mental health. Could you share a couple of those websites? Because I sure. think that would be important to make sure people know where they can reach out um, to start engaging with others to try to get support. Sure. Uh, of course, as you mentioned, I used to blog for BP Magazine. So uh, their website is bphope.com and there's an online forum. You can read from bloggers. They have a number of bloggers that write for the uh, for the online website. There's psychcentral.com. There's healthyplace.com. Those two websites are also consumer-based, but they cover the wide range of addiction and mental health uh, you know, concerns. And they also have bloggers. They have forums. They have informational uh, articles and so forth written by professionals. So, you know, there are a lot of places where you can get reliable information that actually has been researched. NAMI, of course, the National Alliance on Mental Illness is a very great resource, uh, once again, for family members and people who want to learn more about mental health. And, and we are in a point now where we're able to learn more at our fingertips than we ever have. I Absolutely. mean, before you'd have to go to the library and dig. Right, right now, all you have to do is, is turn on your computer and it's right there for you. And I think education is one of the most important things you can have. And that's, I think that's important to know that, um, you know, to seek out that help and that, that information to start your own journey um, mm-hmm. of recovery is, is really important. Um, you know, you had, you had touched on, um, you know, your, your journey and you mentioned that your spiritual life has been a big part in your recovery. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that and, and how that was for you? Sure. It's interesting how I was raised in the church. So, I mean, I was, I'm actually adopted. And that's also kind of another part of the journey. I don't even know my family history per se okay. and my natural family history. But I was adopted. And so virtually at the age of six months or so, I was baptized. And so I was raised in the church. So I had that upbringing. I, I was confirmed. And then when I went away to college, as many people do, I kind of drifted away from that that, mm-hmm. that upbringing. And I really was kind of, as I say, in the wilderness. I, I floated around a lot, but I never really, um, I, I, I really tried to still uh, maintain that, that spiritual context. Uh, I would pray, uh, you know, for help. And sometimes we say there were foxhole prayers, you know, God, get me out of this, you know, I'll, I'll do anything. <laughs> right, um, right. But, you know, what happened was, over time, you know, I made connections with people, um, you know, for instance, my former pastor was someone who I was still in touch with. I would call him in the middle of the night mm-hmm. sometimes because I was just so desperate. But then when I got into recovery, uh, you know, a more formal recovery program, that's where I learned how to uh, utilize spiritual practices to help myself in terms of, you know, being more stable. And so through prayer, uh, meditation, uh, reading, uh all different types of, of spiritual literature. Uh, I've really been able to kind of create a, um, a focus as well as um, 
a base for myself that helps me to to deal with you know life. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, when you when we uh, when you talked about your um, your onset of your mental mental illness, and you also talked about uh, addiction, um, do you see that? individuals that are going through that first stage of mental illness, that addiction or drugs or maybe alcohol is, is used really to help self-medicate during that, that experience? Absolutely. Is that what you say? Was that your own experience? Yeah, it was my experience and the experience of many others because, once again, uh, for many people, and that's for a variety of reasons, they either may not want to to seek professional treatment. Of course, there's a lot of stigma mm-hmm. around seeking professional treatment. There's also the belief that, you know, if I use a certain substance, then, uh, you know, it, it's it's not going to be, uh, it's going to be more helpful than, say, something that's that's prescribed. Uh, and, and so people use these substances to, if anything, um, uh, manage the feelings. And oftentimes, you know, if a person's feeling depressed, they'll use a stimulant. Or if they're feeling, you know, agitated or anxious, they'll use a depressant, you know, like alcohol or marijuana, for instance, to, to kind of calm themselves. So there are a lot of things that people will do to help themselves manage their condition. But unfortunately, I think what happens is in many of these cases, um, it, it's self-prescribed. And so it's hard to regulate exactly, you know, what a person's doing. And that can actually, in the end, create more problems, not to mention the health factors are involved with abusing right. substances. There's a lot of health issues that go along with it. You know, people have, you know, uh, gotten any number of different type of health diagnoses, physical health diagnoses by abusing, you know, alcohol and drugs. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we have a lot that we're going to be talking about uh, throughout the show today. And I just want to just remind our listeners that, you know, the goal of this show is not only to provide you with awareness and discussion on various topics, but really to give you those concrete resources to seek help and support and to restore hope and bring you back, uh, begin your path to recovery. So as we start to head into break, I wanted to share a few resources. I know Carl shared a few as well uh, a little bit earlier on in the segment, um, but I want to share a few resources that um, are available to help you find your local support in your local communities. So a few websites um, that have numerous resources of information are the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which is www.nami. That's www.nami.org. And also there's the mentalhealth.gov website, which is through the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And this is a great resource that provides a treatment locator that is searchable by zip code uh, to find your local resources uh, for mental health and substance abuse. So please um, check out these uh, immediate resources available to you, um, NAMI.org, as well as mentalhealth.gov. Please stay tuned. You're listening to the story, to the journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with Billionaire Healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black and Dari Samia. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. 
the root causes of disease can be better prevented and cured using an integration of modern medicine and holistic healing techniques. Become educated by tuning in to Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. Conventional medicine does have its place, but it should not be the only course of action. It's all about regenerating and healing our whole selves through better choices in lifestyle, foods, spiritual connection, and stress management. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to The Journey. Here again is Jessica Pirro. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today. I have with me um, as a guest today a, a mental health advocate and author, Carl Shalahorn, who's talking about empowering empowerment in mental health. But if you have any questions for our guest um, during the show, please call us toll-free at one 866 472 5792 That's one 866 472 5792 so, Carl, in, in our last segment, you shared your story and your path with living with mental illness and also recovery from addiction. Um, but this path led you to, to many different uh, types of advocacy efforts, but, but also uh, be- becoming an author and writing a book. Um, so you wrote a book, and it's called Working on Wellness, A Practical Guide to Mental Health. So can you share with our listeners what prompted you to decide to write the book? It's funny because... Uh a lot of it was because I wanted to write a book. <laughs> um, I always had this dream of, of, of publishing something. But, you know, okay. what happened was, you know, I, I was actually not even working in the mental health field, you know, uh, right away. But when I, it, I had gone back to work, um, you know, I was working in, in a college setting and I'd started to do a lot of self-advocacy work. In other words, you know, networking with people in the mental health community here in the Buffalo area, uh, sharing my story, which in the end, that's really where it all began, was just wanting to share my story with people that about my recovery and about, you know, where uh, it's led me. And so I thought about maybe, you know, putting something together that could be sort of part memoir, part self-help book. And that's why, you know, I have questions included at the end of each chapter that are more, you know, self-exploratory. And I think the idea behind it was really to just, you know, if anything, give people hope and let people know that it is possible to recover. And frankly, uh, you know, I've been in places, like I said earlier in the previous segment, where there are people who, who don't necessarily get out. And I just have to put it that way that, you know, they're, you know we know that early intervention is really important. Uh, so, so I know that 
I want to share that also with people to know that if they seek help early, then there's more likely a chance that they can embrace recovery. And recovery is different for everyone. I want to make that point too, that not everybody experiences recovery in the same way. But it is possible to go further and get better and, and have a better quality life. Absolutely. Can you share with our listeners where the book would be available or how they could access your book? Sure. Uh, it's available on Amazon.com. So all you have to do is go on to Amazon, uh, type in the title Working on Wellness into the search engine, and it'll pop up. So that's, uh, that's where it comes from. Well, I just want to share, I just received an email um, that came in and um, really a shout out to, to you, to you, Carol. And the message says, uh, Mr. Shallowhorn helped me through my psych- psychological addiction to marijuana. Without him, without knowing it, I was reaching out to him and he informed me that I had to attend an NA meeting. So somebody listening today is somebody you've, ho- you've helped. And um, I think that just shows that the power of a voice and the power of care and compassion um, that really can uh, be provided to somebody else can really change their path um, mm-hmm. in their life. So a huge shout out to yeah, you. Thank I you. thank you Thanks. for for our listener who emailed in and, and shared that today um, with Carl because I think it's important to, to hear that. Yeah, you know, I would say that, you know, fortunately, I think sometimes people are part of our lives for a reason. And, and we kind of talk in the break a little bit about this in terms of the idea of spirituality. And, you know, I, I try to um, relate to people the fact that sometimes, you know, we don't always know why things happen the way they do, but we have to take advantage of those opportunities to make the change. And sometimes when a person basically says, okay, this is where you're at now, and if you continue in this path, then you're going to be going the wrong direction and things are going to get worse. So, you know, for instance, uh, what I try to do when I talk to people in, in any different ways, whether it be related to addiction or mental health, is to say that you have choices and you have options and that if you take advantage of what's available, then you can recover. So the idea behind the book was to let people know about what are your options, what can you do. Right. Now, in reading the book, which, which, is, which is an awesome uh, book and, and really some great, great information and resources um, that people can tap into to help themselves, um, there was a few sections of the book that I wanted to, to share with our listeners. And you, you discuss one section about potential and defining potential as existing and possibilities. How did you find the strength to find your own potential in your recovery? I think it began when I first got into a recovery program myself. And, you know, it's interesting. When I first started, I I came up with my own kind of prayer. And it was basically on the lines of, help me to face every challenge that comes before me today with the best of my ability and potential. So I pray that every day, and I still do, that no matter what happens, that I can, I can deal with life, I can face everything. And, of course, when you talk about potential, I think people have more potential than they even consider they have. And I think that every person can go far beyond what might be their self-perceived limitations. And in my life, I've always, you know, well, not always, but since I've been in recovery especially, I've always tried to kind of push myself a little bit further to try to achieve that potential. And it's been ongoing, and it's still existing. I mean, I still haven't fully reached my potential. In fact, I don't think we ever do. It's about the journey. It's about trying to go a little bit further, stepping out of our comfort zone. And I've been in so many situations uh, in my life where I've had to do that, that I know that that what works for me. And I try to relate that to other people as well. And giving people courage yeah. to, to, to realize that they, those potentials are there and to start to see that within themselves is really gives empowering and empowering them um, to explore that. 
And it, it's about risk taking. Mm. I must say that too. And I also say that, you know, much of it, it comes down to taking healthy risks. Right. In other words, taking a risk that is not going to put yourself uh, in harm's way, but take that risk that if you do make a mistake, that's okay. It's not life-threatening. But if you, if you take that risk, you never know where it's going to lead you. And, and once again, you know, I'm just speaking in my own experience. I've taken a lot of those risks, and, and it's turned out very well. And I think sometimes many people are afraid to take those risks because they get comfortable with where they're at, and they don't see uh, the possibility of going any further. But, you know, when you think about it, Look at all the people in the world who have gone on to do these incredible things. They've all been risk takers. Mm -hmm. They've always, you know, in many ways, kind of gone against the grain almost with what society tells them. So, you know, in my life, um, I choose not to, you know, listen to people who say you can't do it. I choose to listen to the people who say you can. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is such a, an important message. It really is because it can, um, if you're, the fear can paralyze you. And, and so to, to be empowered to take a risk or to try something different, you may find a, a new path that will give you hope and happiness that you never thought you could have. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a wonderful message to share. Um, in the book, you also talked about the plan, the, the title, The Plan. You know, you talked about we plan out our work and our home projects. We put a lot of timelines together for those types of things, but we don't always put the same time and, and attention into our own plans for our health and, and well-being. Can you can you t- discuss a little bit about um, when living with mental illness, uh, why it's helpful to have a plan and also a goal? Um, let's start with the goal. And I think, you know, once again, people... In general, it helps to have a goal about what you want to achieve. And for some people, you know, when you define recovery, it's remission of symptoms. So what do you need to do to make that happen? For other people, it's to perhaps uh, go back to school or get a job or, or, you know, develop healthy relationships. What do you need to do to achieve that? So what is the goal? So you need to know what the goal is. And then you develop the plan based on that. And, of course, a lot of it is based on, okay, what are your short-term goals, what are your mid-term goals, what are your long-term goals, and how can you do that? Uh, there is a SMART goal process that, that many people have utilized, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and timely. You can just Google that, yeah, SMART goals. Yeah. And, and that's something that's helped me as well. And so realizing that, you know, you can do that um, and that you can follow that, that, that method, uh, it's a very practical way of approaching it. And it makes it very... Um, you know, like it says, realistic. And I think the idea is that, you know, of course, not everybody's going to, you know, have the same aspirations. But in the same respect, if you set a goal for yourself, and then if you are able to achieve it, it really gives you a great sense of accomplishment. Uh, it, it helps build your self-esteem. You know, um, when I was uh, in high school, I always wanted to run a marathon. I ran cross country and track. And I always had this dream of running a marathon. In fact, when I went to college at GMI, I entered the Detroit Marathon. Oh. But of course, I went in such a bad direction that I never did it. Right. Well, Flash forward, you know, 20 or so years later, I was working at Buffalo State College and I decided to lose weight. So that was my goal. So I decided to take up running and change my eating habits. And within a year, I ran my first marathon. That was a goal that I had, but I had to have a plan. So when you run a marathon, you have to follow a plan to train because that's the only way you're going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to go squat and run 26 miles, you know, on the drop of a hat. But you have to have a plan and you have to follow the plan. So I find even now for myself, there's certain things I do that are routine, that are uh, part of my lifestyle in terms of, you know, actions that I take to make sure that I stay healthy. 
Great, great. And it's a, that's a good point. And two is also not setting a goal that is so unachievable to start. Right. That taking those baby steps right. to work towards maybe a larger goal is really important because Absolutely. then you're setting yourself up to fail because yeah. you're not going to reach it. So yeah. I think it's, you know, what are the short term pieces to start with? Um, it's a really, that's a really important piece because I think sometimes we set these high goals that we never can get to and then we feel disappointed. Yeah. I mean, if a person say living with depression, for instance, like I've, been, I've lived with depression, as I said, you know, in my, in my life and and it was sometimes just a matter of getting out of bed and taking a shower mm-hmm. you know that's a goal for some people or or you know it's taking a walk down the street getting outside you know we're we're approaching spring now well it's supposed to be spring <laughs> right. i mean i feel like here in buffalo but you know we're getting to a beautiful time of year where i mean i'm looking outside the window right now it's sunny uh take a walk i mean there are so many opportunities to do things that don't cost money that you can really you know do very practically that can help you enhance your physical health your mental health and your overall well-being Great, great, great. And you had mentioned uh, already that you talked about the the wow questions, the working on wellness questions that you have after each um, section of the book. Um, And working through these questions really can help you to start figuring out what a plan could be. And I think that might be a great tool, not only for an individual to do, but maybe to do with their loved one or their family members so that the plan is is not only their plan, but the support of their family to help them um, maybe continue to encourage you to fulfill your plan that you established. Sure. And I think the thing there to recognize is that, you know, it's possible to have, as you said, someone walk with you on this journey and be a part of, of the goals you're setting and the plans that you have. And many people, of course, are uh, working in, in treatment and to improve their lives, and they work with a counselor or a therapist. And I still have a therapist who I go to. I still see someone. I still have a psychiatrist that I go to on a regular basis to work with. So that's part of my own individual plan. Those are the things I do, like I said before, to keep myself healthy. And, you know, for everybody, it's a little bit different. I mean, you can't pigeonhole people into the same category. Everybody has to find what works for them. And I think the most important thing is to realize that, you know, once you know what works, that's what you stick with. You know, you don't deviate from the plan. I mean, in my, my addiction world, in my recovery from addiction, I've seen many people get into recovery, and then for whatever reason, they deviate from their plan. They stop doing what they were doing, and then they start using again, and before you know it, they're out there. So it's really uh, something about being almost, in some ways, methodical. And some people might feel like it's, it's too routine, but honestly... Um, that's okay to have a routine. That's how you know you you maintain where you're at. You maintain that stability. Right. That's a good point. Now, in sharing your your bio early on, you went to school for broadcasting, and you have a degree too in in school administration and personnel. Um, and today, you're doing a lot of advocacy work with our local mental health association and an organization, Compere, here in Buffalo. How did you get into the work that you're doing today? Considering what you thought you wanted to do back when you were in college. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I got out of uh, you know I, I got out of college. I got a job working at a local recording studio. But then I got into recovery. And then a couple of years into that, I said to myself, "Well, I want to be a counselor." So in between 1992 and 1998, I worked at Buffalo General Hospital as an addictions counselor. Then I decided to leave the field. I actually had my last manic episode in 1995, and that was a time in my life which was really critical. My wife actually was pregnant at the time. Uh, things were really kind of touch and go. I was able to bounce back from that, fortunately, and then I realized I had to make a change, which is why I went to graduate school. I pursued uh, the career in higher education for about 12 years. I worked primarily in admissions-related positions, but eventually I got to a point where I thought to myself, 
why aren't we hearing any positive stories about people living with a mental illness? All we hear is these negative stories in the media. And in fact, I was thinking about Britney Spears one day when I was cutting the lawn. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, let me, let me just write an article for the paper. And I wrote this article for the Buffalo News, and it was printed. And that's really where it kind of began. And I remember years ago, I would talk to my pastor saying, I just want to share my story about recovery. And so it was very organic in a way where it all began. And like I said earlier, I started to network with people in the area, in the community here uh, in Buffalo. Uh, I started reaching out and finding ways I could do that. Um, and, and if anything, it just kind of developed and grew. Uh, I eventually became a member of the Mental Health Association Erie County Board of Directors. And things began to pick up a little bit there. I got connected with the uh, Western New York Children's Psychiatric Center. I had done some presentations for them. I uh, developed a 10-week college prep program because I was working at Damon College at the time, you know, in their admissions office. I was the associate director of graduate admissions. So I thought, well, gee, let me take my college experience and right, tie it up right. with my, my own personal experience and, and help the kids. So that was great. Thing I got to be able to do. And then it just kind of evolved. And before I knew it, um, I was in a place where I was working locally here for a mental health agency as a counselor. I decided to get back into the field. And that took me in a different direction because it taught me a lot about people who are still living with mental illness. And it was a great education in empathy, being able to mm-hmm. understand where people are at and identify. So I got to that point where I was able to see myself where uh, the people were who I was working with and understand that, you know, I'm very much like they are and I want to be able to help. So I thought about taking it to the next level, which is more along the lines of advocacy. And that's began where I began to talk to other people in the field, other professionals about, okay, how can I do this? Initially, people were saying, you can't do it. There's right. no way to do it. No one's doing it. But I, I just didn't give up. And I kept kind of talking and pressing people. And, you know, and before you knew it, I had this opportunity to take the job that I have now. I've been at for a couple of years and it's really opened up a lot of doors for me and be able to be able to share the message of recovery and also advocate and be a voice. And I think so many people living with mental illness or addiction or both uh, don't have a voice. And right. it's unfortunate because uh, they often feel uh, that no one cares. And and the thing that it comes down to, my wife even said this to me the other night. She said, well, you'll always be a counselor. And that's kind of where it all began was me wanting to help. And by helping people, I get helped as well. You know, it's like what we give is what we receive. And so I think for me, it's been a matter of just being willing to speak up and not be afraid to speak up. Because a lot of people don't want to share their story for a lot of reasons, whether they be in the workplace or even with their own family or friends. I took a risk. I took that healthy risk right, you know, right. years ago, and it's proven to be very beneficial. And if anything, uh, it's been the kind of thing that uh, has turned out to be more than I ever could have imagined. You know, as they say, you know, um, beyond my wildest dreams, you know, right. that's kind of what's happened. So, Well, that's great. And I think you know, a couple of pieces that keep coming up and themes here is, is that willingness to take a risk and putting yourself out there a little bit and, and sharing your story because you don't, you're not only helping yourself, but really the impact you're helping others. I mean, even the email we got that I shared a few minutes ago just shows that by you taking that risk not only helped yourself and your your recovery and your process but really helping so many people in our community and really across the country you're you're, you're kind of you're with your blogs and in your different writings that you're doing so it's it's really 
play really a powerful message today about empowerment. But we, um, you know, as we um, head into break here, I, I just want to remind everybody that there are numerous websites out in uh, on the internet that you could Google to find uh, information and resources. One is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which is www.nami.org. It's www.nami.org, as well as mentalhealth.gov, um, which also helps you find uh, resources in your local community to seek help and treatment uh, for mental health and addiction. So you are listening to the stories, um, or the journey, the stories of crisis and hope. Please stay tuned. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to The Journey stories of crisis and hope we'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show please send an email to j piro voice america at gmail.com that's j p i r r o voice america at gmail.com now back to the journey here again is jessica piro Welcome back, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I have with me uh, advocate and author Carl Shallowhorn, who's been sharing his story um, with us today on uh, living with mental illness and uh, recovery from addiction and just the um, words of empowerment and and also risks to, risks to take um, to help yourself and um, someone you love. So if you have any questions for our guests during the show, please call us toll-free at one 866 472 
1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. So, Carl, you took your your lived experience um, and you put it into action and advocacy for others. Um, What was the point in your journey that led you to decide you wanted to do this and kind of take this as really your mission uh, going forward? Yeah, like I mentioned um, in the last segment, I was I was working in, in higher education, and my life pretty much was completely removed from the mental health world. I mean, I was doing well myself. Virtually no one I worked with knew about my condition, and that's the way I wanted to keep it for a while. Um, but then I really began to realize that, you know, we need more of a voice. And I have to admit, I was very naive, very naive about taking the risk of, of writing the article that would be in the paper, because... Once it was out there, there were people at the college where I worked who, who read it and kind of had the, I didn't realize it kind of, uh, you know, oh, approach. Man. And I even talked to a friend on the phone. She said, I didn't know you were bipolar. And I thought to myself, well, what does it look like? <laughs> right, right. So, right. I mean, so I, I took that risk. But then again, once I realized that it was empowering, you know, when I took that risk to speak up, and of course, I was very fortunate that I had sort of a, a good track record, as I say. I'd been working professionally for a long time. Um, I had no issues. Uh, you know, I wasn't, you know, coming right out of the hospital. I wasn't just, you know, getting clean. You know, I had a lot of, you know, positives so that people couldn't say, well, look at that behavior. That, that makes sense. I mean, I had none of that going on, fortunately. But I did decide to do it. And I thought, well, let's, let's take the next step. So I did decide to, to pursue it even further and, and really try to talk to people more about, you know, possibilities and, and what's available and you know as i said earlier to give hope i mean that's something that's so critical for people that they just need to know that there's hope and that it is possible to get better and it's not easy i will say that too that you know i mean i've been living with this for a long time and it's not been you know easy one bit uh there have been times when i really had a lot of doubt but through perseverance and sticking with it and the plan and so forth, that's been, you know, how I've been able to do it. Well, I think one of the things that we talk a lot about um, locally as well as I think across the country with a lot of providers that are working in the mental health or behavioral health field is education and awareness um, and how critical that is to bring that discussion to the forefront to really help reduce stigma so that people will step forward and get the help that they need Um, and training for people and professionals in the workplace to help support their employees but just training about mental health um, is something that is really critical to provide empathy, compassion and awareness um, to someone that is living with mental illness. So you're an instructor for the mental health first aid curriculum. Can you talk a little bit with our listeners about what that program is? Sure. Uh, Mental first aid is a program that was originally uh, developed in Australia in 2001. It was then uh, brought to the United States in 2008 by the University of Maryland and the National Council on Behavioral Health. Since the time, there have been nearly uh, half a million people who have been trained in wow. the curriculum. There's nearly, I think, at least 3,000 instructors all over the country. The program is offered worldwide. I mean, they have programs in Canada, uh, New Zealand, Wales, I believe, uh, you know, Thailand. I mean, you name it. There's, there's mental health first aid all over the world. And the idea behind the program is to, as you said, pr- uh, promote awareness about mental health. It helps to educate people about signs and symptoms, specifically around depression, anxiety, uh, psychosis and substance use. Uh, also, it uh, helps reduce stigma. You know, the people that come to our trainings oftentimes are lay people. They don't have any experience with mental health, at least in terms of education. They may have a loved one that might have an experience, but they don't fully have the knowledge of what's going on with that person. So, what we do is we educate in a very uh, 
realistic and reliable way. All the program's evidence-based means that it's been tested, it's been researched to be effective, uh, it's valid. So if you go to a mental health first aid training in Buffalo, if you go to a mental health first aid training in Denver, Colorado, or Arizona, you name it, you're going to get the same program from wherever you get it. So it's been proven to be very effective. Uh, you know, the, the program itself is being promoted uh, even more so now. They're hoping to have, just in this year alone, uh, a million people trained. Mm-hmm. So there's a great effort in trying to get the word out. Uh, and the National Council on Behavioral Health is really, you know, the leader behind this and is really trying to get people to, to get trained. And, and the goal is by 2020 to have as many people trained in mental health first aid as there are trained in traditional CPR. Right, right. I was going to, that's what I was thinking. When you say mental health first aid, you think of first aid, CPR, and really it's the, it's, it's making a universal statement about, um, health in general. If it's physical health, if it's mental health, it's all health. And I think that that's really a great message that the Mental Health First Aid um, provides. And their their website is is www.mentalhealthfirstaid.org. Pretty uh, straightforward (laughs) and simple. Um, And it's a great, great resource, uh, a lot of information. You're able to find out where your trainings are in your local community. So really, and this is being an international training, Mm. really that website can really help you get Mm. linked in with, um, you know, where those trainings are being offered. And I know, uh, according to the, the website, they talk about that the training helps to grow knowledge of signs and symptoms, like you talked about, risk factors for mental illness and addictions, um, increasing confidence in, and likelihood to help an individual in distress. I really think that's important. Absolutely. It's really um, teaching empathy and compassion to reach out. And I think that that's probably a great message to take away from this type of training because a lot of times people feel like, well, I don't want to interfere or I don't want to get involved. But how important is it for, for somebody to just ask somebody how they're doing? Sure. I mean, that's, that's so crucial because oftentimes uh, we may feel that we are encroaching on someone's privacy or that, you know, it's someone else's, you know, role to take. And the reality is, is that oftentimes if you just ask the question, you'll get an answer. And, you know, sometimes people may be more resistant, but... The idea is that letting them know that you're available, you know, they may not be willing to talk at the moment, but to let them know that you're available, they may want to approach you later on and say, well, this is what's going on or, or just, you know, opening things up. And one thing I didn't mention that also the program goes into is the topic of suicide. Mm-hmm. And as you know yourself as Absolutely. a professional in, in that field, uh, that it's critical to know how to ask the question, how to approach someone and say, are you thinking of killing yourself? And of course, that message is taught in, in virtually every suicide prevention training that's out there. So that's consistent with that. And, and of course, I think that's important to know that by being able to talk with someone and, and maybe open up the conversation, uh, you'll be able to get them to a point where they may be willing to seek help, whether it be traditional treatment, they may be willing to seek help through support groups or, or other means. And, and also, it teaches about you know, the different types of professionals that are available. It teaches about the different types of therapies. It teaches about different types of supports that are out there, self-help and so forth. So it really is a pretty comprehensive program. That's great. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the piece about the education around suicide and suicide prevention because um, in the work that we do here at Crisis Services in Buffalo, we are a suicide prevention agency. And a lot of times when we talk with people um, after they've attempted um, and, and have survived, um, we kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what was going on or, you know, um, why didn't you maybe reach out for help? We kind of put that owner, ownership on the person to reach out for help. Um, or why didn't you talk to somebody? And a lot of times we hear that they say, well, nobody asked 
asked me. Mm-hmm. Nobody asked me how I was doing. They might have saw something was going on, but nobody asked. And that one question can really change, really is life-saving yeah. and really can change a life. And I just want to share um, with our listeners um, that the for this, if anyone is having thoughts of suicide um, or has concerns for a loved one, there is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline uh, that you can contact. It's 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. And that's a 24-hour hotline that's available nationally um, to reach out to a counselor um, if you have, are having thoughts of suicide. Um, so you also do um, a program called the Brain Train. Right. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Sure. Brain Train is a collaborative effort between Compere of uh, Buffalo, the Mental Health Association of Erie County, and Jewish Family Service. So the three agencies have come together to uh, offer workplace wellness training. Now, uh, we offer within that mental health first aid, which I mentioned before. We also have several other programs that focus on wellness in the workplace. So we have a mental health and workplace program. We have one on self-care. We have one on bullying, which, of course, oh, you know, you, you think of bullying as being something that, that's for high schoolers and middle schoolers. Well, it happens in the workplace as well. And then we also have one on employee engagement called, uh, you know, all work and no play. Mm -hmm. So many of these trainings are geared towards management. We also have trainings that are geared towards frontline staff. And I've delivered a number of these over the last couple of years to all kinds of uh, organizations and businesses. And the idea is that, you know, what we've learned over the last 10, 20 years is that, you know, mental health is a is a primary factor in lost productivity in the workplace. Yeah. Um, you know, they say that uh, $44 billion a year alone is lost in productivity because of depression, mm. depression alone. Wow. And so we know that with considering all the other factors, including substance use, it is a huge draw on on our, our labor force. And, of course, now, mind you, it isn't just about the money. So that's where, you know, businesses may find an appeal. But the reality is, what about the employees? You know, it's their welfare that should come first. You know, the byproduct is, you know, having a company have a better bottom line. But the reality is you want your workforce to be healthy. You want your workforce to be informed and educated. You want them to know that there's resources available that they can they can achieve, uh, go for and, and obtain, you know, through whether it be EAP mm-hmm. or other types of services. So it's really critical for businesses to know that, you know, if their employees are healthier, then the company's going to be healthier. And, of course, we know now through wellness plans, through insurance companies, that uh, there are all kinds of, you know, incentives for health, you know, physical health. Well, what about incentives for mental health? You know, so, sure, you can get yoga, you can get massage, but what are the things you can do for your mental health to, to enhance yourself? Absolutely. That's a really good point. And I think that, that um, employers do have a, a re- definite responsibility to pay more attention to that. I just want to share with you uh, another email that came in from one of our listeners, and it just says, I just wanted to comment that this is wonderful to hear such a positive message of hope from you today, um, you. from your experience. So I just wanted to, again, share that with you. Um, you're definitely having an impact on our listeners today. Today, which is important and maybe giving them hope um, to maybe reach out for help. So um, as we start to, to close um, our segment, um, I just wanted to offer our listeners, if there's any message for them that you would want to, to leave them with today. I guess the main thing I would say is that, of course, recovery is possible. And I always say that whenever I speak with folks to let them know that, you know, you can do it. You, you know, you have to use the proper resources. You have to ask for help. 
but if you ask, you'll get it. And, you know, it might take all time. You know, recovery is not an overnight quick fix. Uh, It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of patience. But the reality is, is that you can do it and that, you know what, you don't have to suffer. And, you know, trust me, I was suffering for a long time and I was able to, unfortunately, turn that corner and, and have a better life. And it's really important. So how could our listeners contact you if they wanted to find more about you or your book? Sure. They can reach me at my email, which is carlmhacompere at gmail.com. That's K-A-R-L-M-H-A-C-O-M-P-E-E-R at gmail.com. And the book is available on Amazon, as you mentioned, correct? So I want to thank you so much, Carl, for for being with me today and and sharing your your message um, and your story. Um, This is really the whole purpose of the show. It's called The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope, and really providing listeners with information, access to to resources, but also the hope that there is a path of recovery um, from any type of crisis. So I want to thank you all for joining us today. Um, Please join me every week, uh, Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, Pacific time, 11 a.m. Eastern time. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and do your part this week to provide hope to others. Thank you for tuning in to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join your host, Jessica Pirro, for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week.